Our special guest this evening is one of the most beloved and iconic actors of our time. Her radiant charm, infectious smile, and disarming sensitivity first won her roles on television at the tender age of 17 in the Girl Next Door comedy, Gidget. From there to, starring, to a starring role in The Flying Nun, her career soared to new altitudes as she played dazzling array of characters from the complex Sybil to her Academy Award-winning performances in Norma Ray, Mary Todd and Mary Todd Lincoln. An actor of astonishing range, each new performance offers new revelations to audiences. And now in her memoir, In Pieces, we hear from a character who's remained in the wings of a life lived in the limelight. Written with a novelist's eye for telling details and a poet's ear, Sally Field immerses us in the defining experiences of her life. From the darkest corners of her early years to the luminous presence of her mother, through the looking glass of world of performance and stardom, this is a memoir that delves deeply into what drove a compulsive and effervescent performer and illuminates the challenges she faced in realising her dreams. Southbank Centre's London Literature Festival runs from now until the 28th of October, and over the next few days, we'll be hearing from more iconic voices from across the arts who have left indelible impressions on culture, from literature and poetry to visual art and film. But tonight is all about Sally Field. I'm delighted that Sally will be in conversation with the author and journalist Elizabeth Day. Elizabeth's fourth novel, The Party, was published to acclaim last year and is a deaf psychological portrait of the fault lines that run through a 40th birthday celebration. She's also the host of the brilliant new podcast, How to Fail with Elizabeth Day, in which she asks an incredible array of successful people what they've learned from their misfires and wrong turns. You can't go wrong listening to it. It's rich in insights, humility, and laughter, as I'm sure tonight will be. So, without further ado, please join me in giving a very warm welcome to Sally Field and Elizabeth Day. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Goodness. I mean, you're used to this kind of crowd, but I'm really not. So <laughs> I am so excited to be here interviewing you, Sally. Um, when I told my friends that I was getting to meet you and do this, there was an array of excitement. And I think one of the wonderful things was that in their responses, they all cited a different version of Sally Field. <laughs> so there was the Sybil Sally Field, there was the Flying Nun Sally Field, uh, there was Norma Ray, there was Forrest Gump's mother, there was the Mrs. Doubtfire Sally Field, there was Brothers and Sisters Sally Field, there was Steel Magnolia Sally Field, there was Lincoln Sally Field, there was ER Sally Field. <laughs> and now we have memoirist Sally Field and it's your latest incarnation and you do such a beautiful job of it. Um, and I wanted to ask you a bit about the fact that everyone has their different version of you because you have taken on such a dizzying array of parts and you called your memoir in pieces, and I wonder where that title came from. Oh, okay, buckle up. <laughs> uh, <laughs> um, in uh, in pieces is is me. Um, it, it, it's how do I even back into this? Um, 
Let me just start at the beginning, which has nothing to do with your question, but I promise I'll get back to it. It may seem I won't, but I promise I will. Uh, my mother passed away on my 65th birthday, and I'll be 72 in November, so that means it was seven years ago. And when she passed away, I thought we had done all the right things. We had had the conversations that should be had. We had the, 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 the meetings and the time together. And, and you, when, she, when she left, I thought, well, I've done all the right things, and, and I will let her go, and, and I will grieve for a while, and it will be gone, and she will always be with me. But I felt deeply disquieted. I felt that there was something missing. Uh, there was something wrong, something gangrenous growing on me, and I didn't know what it was. And it kept growing, uh, this great urgency to find what it was. And serendipitously, it, it, almost exactly at that same time, a friend of mine who is the co-founder of the Omega Institute in upstate New York, and if you don't know what that is, it's, an, it's a phenomenal place of, of learning and beautiful outdoor campus. And every year they would have a four-day conference called Women in Power, where they would invite the most extraordinary women from all over the world. I mean, one year they had all the Nobel Prize winning women who came came and spoke of their lives and what was the future and how did they get there and their wisdom. And you sit in, the, in an audience of, you know, maybe 1,500 people just living off of this, what they're hearing, and you know that it will enrich them and empower them. And this year she asked me, was I coming? And I said, absolutely, I'm coming. I'm going to sit, you know, kind of in the middle of the audience and just sort of be glad to be there. And she said, well, I'm so glad because I want you to give the keynote address. <laughs> and I said, well, I can't, I can't possibly do that. I can't give the keynote. How dare you even ask me to give the keynote address? I can't, I have nothing to say. And she said, Yes, you do. And all of a sudden, something fell into place. Yes, I did. I had something to say, and I needed to say it. I needed to say it. And so I wrote a, a speech. I, I, they, I know they were thinking maybe it would be a nice little 15-minute speech saying, turn to your neighbor and introduce yourself, and he, the cafeteria is that way, and they're open for this. And I didn't. I didn't. I wrote an hour-long speech that was raw and, and um, personal and, and hard to read. And I sat up there. I, I, I stood at the, at the podium and, and shook visibly shaking all over, and, and, and read this speech, which is essentially the last chapter of the book, kind of. But that, that night, what I, what I felt from, sort of like this, except this is much darker than it was, but it, it was stark. And it, it was this, this, this something, this, this familiar, faceless audience that I have had I've had contact with my entire adult life without ever knowing I knew, and it informed me and stayed with me and, and kept me company. And what I felt from them to me, from me to them, it was this piece that fell into place. I had to find this story, and I didn't know what it was. And I had to write it. 
and I had to try to explore a new craft that I didn't know. Um, because I know it was only in trying to find the craft of acting that I was able to dig down and find pieces of myself that I didn't want to know, that I didn't want to have access to. But because I wanted this craft of acting, I was able to find those pieces of myself and start to bring them together. And in seven years ago, in saying I was now going to learn a craft of writing, because only then would I go into those boxes of memorabilia that I have carted around with myself for, for 40 years. My entire adult life carted these boxes around. And I has letters and journals and memorabilia and memories that I didn't want to know. I have, I have letters in there, a letter from my father that I received when I was in my mid-40s and put away and never, ever read because I didn't want to know what it said. But now I needed to know. And somehow, some way along my life, the pieces of me took care of me. I was, I had came from a, a traumatic kind of childhood that, that fragmented me, and I didn't have access to all of me. It was only in acting that I was able to call on those pieces and bring them together and know who they were. And it was only in trying to learn a new craft that I have such great love of words. I, I so revere writers and what they do and poetry and what they do and what words do. And it was only in trying to put myself in that craft that I went into those boxes, that I read my mother's journals, that I reread my own journals, that I read the letter my father sent me, that I read the letters that my stepfather sent my mother, that I read them and I saw things I didn't want to see and I put them all out in front of me, pieces, all of those pieces and put them together so that I could come together. And that is in pieces. <laughs> I think that's the best first answer to any question. <laughs> so now that that asked. is over, now it's time for other questions. <laughs> I forgot to say at the beginning, actually, that I will be turning this over to you for the last half hour. So if you've got questions that you'd like to ask Sally, please be thinking of them now. Um, but Sally, to return to that, I wonder how much you were aided in that writerly quest by the role which in many ways was your breakthrough role in terms of quote-unquote serious acting, which was the role of Sybil, a woman living with multiple personality disorder, who is the very definition of someone living in pieces. Fragmented, yeah. The thing was, is, is that um, it has taken me so long to really understand what my uh, system of, of survival, um, what, what my, what my brain set up for me uh, at, at four and five and six and seven and eight and nine and ten so that I could get through things that were difficult for me. It's, it's taken me my lifetime to unravel them, to understand my own, my own system. And I was distanced from it 
because I couldn't know it, because I couldn't, I couldn't put all those pieces together. And when I did Sybil in 1976, maybe, 1975, um, and I was, I was 26 um, or seven, 27, maybe, um, I could not see that that was my system to a degree. Certainly not as to the, the, the extent of Sybil's um, device to save herself. But it, it wasn't until uh, my mother was very ill and uh, I felt that I was the one that was dying and I couldn't understand why I couldn't breathe. And um, this was, you know, in my early 60s and I finally found uh, a really good therapist, Dr. Daniel Siegel. And he was the only one who ever said to me, the minute I said, you know, I'd, I'd met him only a few times. And of course, immediately, how do you do? And he was gentle and kind and relived things that as if they happened 30 seconds ago, they were fresh and scabless and there. And yet they happened when I was you know, five and six and seven. And it was only then, that the only person who ever said, can you name all the aspects of yourself? I mean, whatever you call them, personalities, um, pieces, parts. And I said, I called them pieces. And just name them. I knew them. I knew them instantly. And I had instinctually always known that because I'd used that as an actor. I had been an actor all my life who could call on that rage part, that fire part, as I called her. I could, I could call on this sexual part of myself that stayed, stayed hidden. I call her the mad woman in the attic. Um, I, knew, I knew their names, but they did not live with me. They lived slightly distanced from me, and I could call on them as an actor because if I needed them in a character, then they were there, and they, they had conversations with, with each other. All the pieces and aspects of myself would discuss life. That's the way people are supposed to develop, and I believe, as I've studied it, it happens in adolescence, that the pieces of ourselves begin to negotiate with each other. For instance, if the if there is a, you have a test to do, and you're an adolescent, and you say, but I want to go out and party, and you know that the English test is tomorrow, but you know, I really want get, to get a good grade on this test, so there's the taskmaster part of you and the really fun, let's go out and party part of you. And you begin to negotiate with each other. You begin to say, well, look, not necessarily consciously, but maybe consciously, you talk to yourself. And you say, oh, okay, okay, uh, you know, what I'm gonna do is I'm gonna study for three hours and then I'm gonna party like hell for the next four hours. Um, but I did not have the ability to, to have conversations. And they would, one side would be, and then another side would be. And sometimes I would be that person and think, what? And then I would go back and be, be another aspect and, and, and kind of wonder what happened. It wasn't that I didn't know what happened. It was that I had no way, if, if, a, if the rage aspect of myself took over, I had no gauge. I had no part of me that said, Sally, maybe you really want to think about what you're saying here right now. Maybe you want to sit back for a second, take a moment walk around the room a little bit. Maybe you don't want to literally go like a life or death kind of moment here. And I couldn't, I couldn't tell the difference. 
I want to touch on this, but only touch on it, because your book and your life is so much more than it, and yet it is, as you mentioned, informed by it. Because what you're talking about there sounds like a, a confusion of boundaries. And I know that that was something you experienced at the hands of your stepfather. It was a conflicted relationship. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Yeah. And you talk about it very movingly and actually very carefully in the book. And I wondered how hard that was for you, confronting it. Um, you know, it, it was uh, how hard... It, what, you know, the, the process of when this took me over and how it took me over. Um, and again, I will get back to this answer. It will seem like I'm not, but I promise I'll come back trust to you, it. Trust you, trust <laughs> you. Um, when, when this began, I, I had no idea how to, wh how am I going to do this? I, I did not want to work with any of the Hollywood agents. No, nothing against Hollywood agents, but through the years they would come to me and say, sometimes with wonderful publishers, we would like you to write a memoir. We know just who to write it for you. Uh, and, and this was not what I wanted to do because I knew my story was not going to be anything they had in mind. Um, and so when I knew I had to find a way into this, what I needed to find for myself, I, I looked up some of the writers I most regard. Um, Elizabeth Stroud was one, uh, Jane Smiley, and Frank McCord, because Angela's Ashes, I think, is arguably one of the great memoirs ever, ever written. And I, and I looked it up, and oh, it was, they were all represented by the same person, Molly Friedrich. Oh, my goodness. And so I contacted her on her website, Dear Miss Friedrich. My name is Sally Field. I've been an actor for, for most of my adult life. I've been in there, you know. And she wrote back, you know, shortly after and said, how nice of you to reach out to me. I'm very flattered. I don't think we're a match. And I said, okay. Uh, and uh, this was all, you know, via the internet. And uh, she said, but I'd love to read your speech. So I sent her my hour-long speech that I had just literally a week ago read at the Omega Institute. And then she wrote back and she said, um, perhaps you'd, we should meet when next you're in New York. So I ran to her Midtown office. And she said, she said I, I hear a little tiny bit of voice here, not much. <laughs> she, said, she said, but when I talk to you, I, I don't know that you know what story it is you want to tell. And I said, I don't know what story it is I want to tell. I don't know what the story is. I, I have to find it. And she said, okay, so this is what I want you to do. I want you to write 50, 80 pages from the get-go. Not episodic, literally, page one, once upon a time. Bring me that. If I, if I respond to that, I'll represent that and not you. But that rang my bell, because it meant that she would see, perhaps, that the work was worth her time and expertise, and she wouldn't be looking to represent some preconceived idea of a celebrity. And I, so I went home. A task. Yes, a task. Okay. And I wrote 50 pages that, that turned into 100 pages that turn into 200 pages, that turn into a year, that turn into two years, and three years, and four years, and 250 pages, and 300 pages, and five years, and six years. And Molly would, would um, she would say, she would, she would touch base seasonally. 
seasonally. And so that meant she would say, Sally, hello, it's fall. Uh, the leaves are turning. How are you? Are you still writing? And what M Molly doesn't know, or she then began to learn, is that this took me over. It possessed me. I, I began with that 50 pages, 80 pages. I, I, I used my own craft, the craft I do know, a creative craft in itself, the structure of it, to guide me into this. I used acting exercises, and that's the answer to your question. I used acting exercises to put me in places I didn't want to go. And I knew how to do that because I knew so many times in my career that you can see on film, I'm in places I don't want to be, emotional places. And the way, you got, way I would get there is how I was taught by Lee Strasberg through these backdoor, act, really acting exercises of memory and, and places. And um, I found I would meditate and I would go into these places and then I would, I would set a timer and I would say, I'd set the timer to an hour and I'm in this exercise and I said to myself, just write. Don't, tell, don't criticize yourself. Don't, if you want to repeat yourself and say the same word you know, for 18 pages, fine. Um, but I would go to this place and I would see it so vividly in my past, in my life, and I would just, it would just be frantic need to get it out as fast as I could, as fast as I could, as fast as I could. So was it hard? It, you know, hard is, 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 is underrated. <laughs> it, it was wonderfully, horribly difficult. Um, and blissfully so, the way work should be. And I, I long to have the pages back. <laughs> They're out there now, and can't I have them back? Um, because that time, it became something else. It became my best friend and my confidant and, and my companion, and I had pages in my pockets and my shoes, and I would go do other work, you know, and I had to go do my day job. But I had, I had crinkling when I would sit down because, oh, I go, oh, well, those are the pages in my pockets. I'm sorry to the sound guy. I'm sorry, I'll take those out, yeah. And I couldn't let it out of my hands. And then, literally, this was sort of taken out of my hands by Molly. <laughs> Um, because it, last year, last September, she touched in and said, Sally, it's fall. Uh, it's fall now, Sally, are you there? And I said, Molly, I was just about to send you a manuscript. Now, I thought full well. I would send her this manuscript at 300 and some odd pages, and she said, what a good try. Mm -hmm. And <laughs> let's see how we can help you further this, but that's just not what she said. And um, it's just been really... Alice, head over the heels down the rabbit hole ever since um, until here I am, and there it is. And can't I please take it back? <laughs> well, I suppose that leads on to my next question, which is 
how vulnerable you feel having it out there. Because when you tweeted about this event, mm -hmm. yes, Sally Field is on Twitter. Well, my son did that. My son, son. did that for me. Uh, is this Sam? Was it Sam? Sam. Yeah, Sam, who's who's famous on Twitter because because a, a text that Sally sent him about the Olympic ice skater I, but Adam Riffin went viral. That's why from now on he does it. <laughs> he says, "Okay, from now on this has to go through me." You know. Uh, yeah, when I'm, I just underestimate the, the real power of, of social media. We'll come back to that. But, okay, good. But when you tweeted about this event, a lot of people replied to that tweet saying that they were survivors of abuse and thanking you for speaking out almost on their behalf. And I wonder, what's the emotional cost of that for you? Do you get people coming up to you after you do events like this? N not... I, I think I feel buffeted. I feel there's a distance between me and, and them. First of all, I don't read any of that. I don't re read reviews and I don't read any, anybody who answers me. Isn't that terrible? I can't help it. It's like the memories that I keep in those boxes that I drag around with me. Part of me feels I will look at it someday, but I don't know that I can handle it right now. Um, there's a piece of me that's protecting me. Uh, and maybe wrongfully so, that I should know these things and I should dig in and look at it. And, and, um, but then, quite honestly, because I've been on this kind of amazing um, book journey, this book tour since uh, September 10th, basically, um, and I, I, I will be sitting across from somebody doing a moderated conversation, and I'm here with them and with you, and they will say the most kind of egregious um, insensitive question that it means they either they really didn't understand the book or they're having their own personal reaction from it and it's been interesting for me to have to figure out how to answer that except to say what it what can I ask you exactly what you're feeling right now you know and it turns into a little bit of a, a session um, so um, it it is interesting in that, and, but I haven't had a lot of conversation with you uh, because really the book is so new in the world, um, not a lot of people um, have been able to say they read it um, in, until very recently, uh, that um, before I left and came here uh, in the United States and I would have some of like this and somebody would say, I, I did read it. and. Um, so then I could start to feel the impact that it might have had on them, like one woman in the audience started to speak and then just burst into tears. And I, I kind of, I have to say, I was sort of like, oh, is that okay? Are you all right? And I realized that she hadn't spoken, you know? She hadn't, something had gone on and she had never spoken. And she was gonna try to attempt to speak about it in a big group and she completely went to pieces pieces. There you go. So I said, don't talk now, but do talk. Do talk somewhere. Begin to speak. Um, so I, I think I'm beginning to feel it. Tell me if I ask an egregiously insensitive <laughs> question that you absolutely hate, won't you? You'll Just... see it in my face, but I, <laughs> I, I, I sense it won't be happening okay, to you. Crossed. But trust me, I, I'm at a point now in my life where I, there is not, I do not hedge my bet. I, I, I do say, I do say, are you out of your mind? <laughs> I do 
love that because, um, again, your memoir is so much about a woman finding her voice. Yeah. And for someone who has been in a very specific industry since the age of 17, you've really, you know, you've had some experiences with men who have tried to take your voice or take your opinion from you or manipulate you into doing things. Um, I'm thinking of the director, Bob Raffleson. Mm -hmm. um, I'm thinking a little bit of Burt Reynolds. Um, and and uh, as a woman reading it, I found it a salutary experience. One of the things that you say was that you found it, it was a long process to learn how to say no. And you spoke about that in reference to um, being the flying nun and being asked to <laughs> present at the Golden Globes. Yes. Can you tell us that story? <laughs> Okay, so uh, let's, see, let's, let's try to go fastly through, fast through it because it could last a long time, this story. Um, it was in the, after the first year, towards the end of the first year of The Flying Nun, that was a huge, big hit, but felt deeply humiliating to me. Uh, I didn't want to do it. I, I wanted to, there was a part of me that was starting to feel the, this tiny, tiny little shaft of light coming into my brain that I wanted to be an actor, a real actor, and um, I, I was invited to present at the second annual, uh, the second annual Golden Globes Awards that was given at the Coconut Grove, the historic Coconut Grove, and uh, I was thrilled, oh my goodness, I'm, I'm being asked to, to be with the real the real industry, and they, the problem was is that they wanted The Flying Nun and not Sally Field. So I, what they wanted me to do it was, as The Flying Nun, to fly across the coconut grove, <laughs> up in the air, and then fly onto the stage and present the award. Well, I didn't want to do that. I mean, are you crazy? I don't want to do that. But I, did, I couldn't say no, I don't, I don't want to do that, it's humiliating. I want to be invited, but I don't want to be humiliated to be invited, and I felt there was always this trade-off. To, to, to do something like that, I had to also be humiliated. So I said, no, I won't wear the outfit. <laughs> well, now this made no sense whatsoever. And no one even bothered to say, Sally, wait a minute. This will make no sense because now it's Sally Field flying across the coconut grove. How does that make any sense? But no one bothered to say that to me. And so as a result, I flew across the coconut grove in a pink taffeta culotte outfit that my mother had made for me two days before. I had my hair in ringlets. I looked like crazy baby Jane. And I, I, I looked up, as, as halfway through the, gold, the, the, the coconut grove by the palm trees, you know, the fake palm trees and the whole thing with the industry down there, and I look up, and we'd never rehearsed it, and there on stage is John Wayne. <laughs> and he's going to catch me. And I see him, like, begin to brace himself because I'm going, <laughs> I'm coming at him very fast. <laughs> and I had never met him. We hadn't rehearsed. And I remember so distinctly as if it was yesterday. I'm nodding my head. Hello, Mr. Wayne. Hello, Mr. Wayne. <laughs> as if we're entering an elevator together, you know. And I, and I, and I landed in his chest, I swear, going 40 miles an hour. <laughs> you know. And he did catch me, I'm happy to say. Uh, and I, then he held me while I presented the, the um, Newcomer of the Year Award to Dustin Hoffman for The Graduate. Yay for him. Mm -hmm. <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Um, when I mentioned the director, Bob Raffleson, there, it, he auditioned you for the role of Mary Tate Farnsworth in Stay Hungry. Yes. And it seemed to me that he made an enormous deal about you having to prove that you were sexy enough mm -hmm. and that he crossed some boundaries in that as well. Um, and I wonder how you feel about that experience with him in the light of Me Too and everything that's happened. I, you know, I... When I wrote this book, it was seven years ago, Me Too was, wasn't even a dream in anybody's head. Uh, and I tried to write all of these incidents without, my, without the, vis, the, the information that I might have today. I tried to write it within the time that I was there and what I felt at the time. And uh, having come from the childhood I came from, it felt very familiar. It felt like familiar territory. I didn't. I couldn't tell the difference between what I had grown up with and what I was asking, being asked to do. I was being asked to please an, an, an older man, a man I needed something from. Um, it it was very much of the era. It felt um, that women had no. This is what we did, and and our lives were about negotiating navigating through this territory. And um, I, I think that Bob also, it was what he was allowed to do. It was accepted. No one questioned it. Um, and, you know, I try to talk about all the conflicting feelings in that. Just as there are conflicting feelings as a child in, in any kind of sexual abuse from a parent uh, that you love, that you need to be loved by. It's so conflicting because you can't, I can't tell the difference between what is love and what is danger. It feels like it must surely go together then. That's what I was taught because I was being adored by a man that I'd, I needed his affection, but something in me felt I was in danger. And so in my brain, what was fired together is that love and danger went together. That's what was fired and wired together in my brain, that love and danger go together. You're supposed to feel those feelings at the same time. So when they would come at me, those situations, it felt familiar. And, it, and again, my, my, what I tried to do in this for myself was to untangle that web, was to see what all my feelings were that were going on at the time and how so many of these situations were preformed ruts in my road that I was destined in a way to fall into because I couldn't see any other way. That's all I knew. And perhaps someone else, I don't know, might have said, what, are you crazy? No, thanks. But uh, it felt familiar. It felt easy and familiar, except not, except not. There was something else that always whispered in my ear, um, and I think I write about it. When I left, I felt I'd won, I'd won. Okay, he, he, he responded to me. Surely I had won, I'd won. But, but what had I lost at the same time? What had I lost? But even within that moment, at 28, whatever that was, I couldn't consciously 
own all of those thoughts all at the same time. I couldn't do it. But God damn it, at 65 I could own them. I could look at them now and I could also go back into it and be that 28 year old girl and feel all those feelings and verbalize them in my head what exactly I was I was feeling. I don't put a conclusion on it. I don't, I don't say, you know, I don't, I don't um, categorize it as, as, a, as an episode good or bad or indifferent. I just try to present it. The same way as if I were acting a character, I would just try to present that character, all of the pieces of information that I know about that character. I wouldn't, I wouldn't try to come to a conclusion I would just say, here it is. And so that was the information I used. So I can't come to a conclusion about what that was. It just was. It, it affected me greatly, but it was what I needed to do, and I did it. And I would probably, if I was facing exactly that situation in that era again, I, I, I don't know. I would have to do what I have to do. Um, we live in a hopefully a different time. Uh, when women have different possibilities um, than I could see. But I was also uh, so predisposed to be vulnerable to this kind of um, person. I think so many women, and possibly men, would, would relate to that. And also to what you say about your relationship with Burt Reynolds in the book, which is the only way you knew how to love then was by disappearing. It was a tremendously affecting sentence. Mm -hmm. um, but I also want to talk to you about your work, <laughs> because there's so much of it of, uh, and of so much dazzling quality. Um, and I'm sure the audience will have so many questions about it. I wondered, because you've got three sons, um, which of your roles is your son's favorite? <laughs> <laughs> oh my goodness, I don't know. I ha half the time I feel like they've never even watched my work. <laughs> That I'm, I, which is a good thing. I'm really just their mother in a lot of ways. Um, I, I, I honestly think that it's this book that has affected him more than any single thing I have done, honestly. And um, they, they grew, my older sons grew up um, feeling very much my own struggle and that my, my situation and the business changing. And I think they wanted to distance themselves a great deal about being the parent, uh, being the child of a, of, a, a, of a celebrity. Because it's difficult, you know, where kids come up and go, oh, are you, is your mother? Da, 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 da. And so they wanted to have their own identity. And, and they're all in the business. So when my older sons start, and they're all writers, gee, what a surprise. <laughs> And I, when, my, when my older son started in the business, they never even told anybody they were related to me. And people would find out and go, what? You know, and, and they kept that, and I admired that. I admired that from them, because they needed to have their own identity without having whatever anyone might think about me or not think about me imposed upon them. So, in, in some ways, they always distanced themselves from, from my work. Um, I think it's only in the last um, really couple of years that I feel them 
Um, this is my older son's. Sam is a different issue. My younger son, who's 18 years younger than my oldest son, yikes. Um, and he's always been, he's been much more open to seeing me as, a, as, a, as an actor and, and, a, and a, even a person in the business and a celebrity and feeling it much more. And I don't know if it's because he's slightly from a different generation than my older sons who are, my oldest son is, is getting close to 50. So holy smoke, how is that even possible? Um, so I, I can't even, if you'd ask them what their favorite role was, I bet they'd him and haw my older sons and go, uh, um, uh, um and not be able to, to clearly answer it. Um, they're they're going to have some work to do as I get older, I think, as I get closer to not being here anymore. I think they're going to have to really think about um, who I am and who they are with me and all of that a little more. Your youngest son, who you mentioned there, is, is tremendously funny on Twitter. And he did post this picture of, of oh you filming Steel Magnolias. Oh, dear. Holding him in your arms. I, I think it was true. some karaoke evening or something, because oh he's got God, headphones in his true. ears. And the caption was, they say, it was something like, they say that how you're brought up and the culture you're brought up in doesn't affect your sexuality. <laughs> <laughs> and yet, dot, dot, dot. And it was a picture of him as a baby with these terrifically strong women. Yeah, it was, I'm standing with Dolly Parton and with Julia Roberts and with Shirley MacLaine yes. and, and, with me. and and we're all looking at the stage like looks like we're singing it. I've got little Sam who was like six months old on, on my chest because he went with me everywhere then and even went to the rap, it was a rap party. And um, I'm holding his ear to my ch chest, so he's has face to my chest, and my other ear, his other ear is covered with my hand because the music was so loud, I thought for sure he'd be deaf after this, you know? So I was like, and they're all singing, and I'm standing with Dolly, and Julia's over my head, and Shirley, and, and Olympia's over here. And yeah, that's, and, and Sam is, is my gloriously, brilliantly, beautifully gay son. And, uh, and he says, and there you have it, boys and girls. <laughs> <laughs> Love it. <laughs> to be there, to be there that night. Um, <laughs> you talk in the book about how the Flying Nun um, and Gidget made you, made you famous. And uh, there's this wonderful sentence where I think you're talking at a high school and you get surrounded by a gaggle of, of, of girls mm -hmm. and you suddenly realise that you've left the club, yeah. the human club. Yeah and you've become that ineffable thing, a celebrity. Yeah. Mm -hmm. How do you feel about your fame? Oh, you know, conflicted. It's, it's, uh, it's, um, it, I don't know. It, it is, I mean, I want to have the opportunity to do my work and fame comes along with it, but fame is really crappy, you know? It's, it's, it really is, uh, um, it cuts you off from people and just being on face value for whatever you are, for whatever you might appear to be, you know, you meet, if I were sitting next to you in the audience, you know, just a person. And, and there's, um, it, it alienates you from that. And uh, so I was already a kid, a little kid that felt alienated. And so it was an added, like, oh, now I'm that, okay. Um, and forever after, there's a part of your brain that is aware of it, you know, where you, ever you, you go, you, 
even if people don't give a rat's hind end who you are and know you from Adam, there's a part of my brain that's going, okay, so they don't recognize me. Okay, fine. I'm good with that. <laughs> you know? um, and, but it's still, that's an energy that's just not, what does that have to do with anything rather than just being present with where I am? I, I wish somebody um, would do a study on what celebrityhood is both from the people who look, like when I came in here tonight, um, and this has been growing since I've been here and doing shows all over um, London. Um, at first, you know, there's nobody, and then there's four people, and then there's 12, and then there's 15, and then the, tonight there was, you know, a, a more, and they're aggressive, and they're pushing, and you know, it's like, what? What is this about, really? You know, they're wanting to take pictures and sign this thing. I mean, why? Just can't we just say how do you do and I, I, I yeah I liked that thing and that was I saw that that was great it's a, it's a mystery and and what I can't imagine really those people standing out there that they actually don't secretly sort of hate me really because they make if it, you know in reality as a human being they think of me as being something better than them why because I, my job is this and your job is that. Um, it's, a, it's a curious thing, it really is. Um, and it cuts me off, it cuts you off, and, I, and, and, it, and, it's, and it happens in all sorts of you know, uh, fields of endeavor, if it's sports or music or politics or, uh, well, politics. <laughs> that's, a, <laughs> that's a whole nother thing. Um, so I don't, I've dealt with fame. And I think anybody who has been famous for a long time would say the same thing. I've, I've dealt with it. And yes, I will use it if I need a table at a restaurant. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't go out very often. <laughs> and honestly, that kind of embarrasses me. You know, when you, when you say you're standing in a line to get in a movie and they go, oh, Miss Field, come right to the front of the line. I want to go, oh, no, 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 I can't, you know. Because everybody's going, yeah? You're going to the front of the line, are you? I, you know, I'm going to stand back here with everybody else and just, like, wait my turn. Um, it's, it's really a mystery. It's really an odd thing to, to, to have in your life. Have you ever been starstruck by anyone? I mean, I know you've met Barack Obama, for instance. Oh, yes. Um, well, honestly, I'm so shy all the time by so many people. It's hard to tell what's starstruck and what's just basically I'm shy and kind of don't know what to say. Um, so have I been really... That's, I don't know. I don't know. I think I write about an instance in the book when I, I was starting and I was thrust in... Uh, all of a sudden, thrust on a stage in at Radio City Music Hall, and I know I met I know I met Barbara Stanwyck, who at that time I I mean I just thought she was so such a magnificent and is was such a magnificent actor, but I think that my own process was that anything that felt overwhelming, I was able to just push out into the fog and not feel. So I think my, my, how overwhelmed I was at seeing her and feeling starstruck just went off into the fog and I didn't feel anything, which is a shame because it meant I lost the, a moment to say, 
You are unbelievably good, and I cannot tell you how much I value your work. And I didn't say that. I just went, hello, you know. I, I hope I was respectful, but I don't even know I was that. What was it like working with Daniel Day-Lewis in Lincoln? Um, that, that's... Uh, um, I never allowed myself to feel anything but, you know, uh, the craft. I, I have enough miles in my proverbial saddle that, that, I, that that's all there was. And as a matter of fact, I was capable of being rather demanding within that, um, with him. Um, he, he doesn't like rehearsal or really, you know, having any time before we begin to shoot. And um, um, even though we had had some time together because I demanded from Stephen that we do a test so that I could get the role, but... Steven Spielberg, Steven Spielberg, yes. <laughs> um, and, but when, when I just heard that we were just going to, you know, show up on the set and start shooting these very powerful, intimate scenes, I just um, texted Daniel, because Daniel and I would text to each other in character, which is great, actually. It sounds weird, <laughs> but it was completely great. Trust me, it was so much fun to try to speak in that, in the dialect of the time, the English at the time, because we had to wrap our brains around that kind of use of the language anyway. But I, as Mary, demanded that I spend time with him tomorrow. Cancel your day. <laughs> I'm showing up at your house. Um, and, and I did. And so uh, I was able to, whatever I might have felt in just basic awe of his work, um, falls to the, to, the, to the way, to the back burner in, in when I can get to the moment to actually just do the craft, get into the craft, get to the work, and we're all even then. Everybody's even then. And as a matter of fact, you better toe the line. You better get up and do your work because then, you know, that's when, you know, <laughs> I'll be saying, and where are you? Where, where's your work? Are you here? Are you, uh, come on, we're working here. Um, so there's, that's, that is the side of me that um, is simply an actor, and I know that craft. Do you rewatch your own screen work? Oh, good God, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, no, no. And, and now I'm, I'm at a point where I really, um, I, like there's a, there's a miniseries that I did uh, for Netflix that's out right now, uh, A Maniac with Emma Stone and a great cast and a great director, Carrie, and I haven't seen it and I probably won't <laughs> ever, even though I love, I love Emma's work. Um, but I, I'm just sort of at a point, um, maybe I'll see it, I really doubt it. I may lie at one point and go, oh, I loved it. <laughs> um, I just don't want, I, 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 it's, I just don't really like watching myself. I'd rather just do the work. And uh, you can feel if it's, if, if your work is working or not. And I don't want to, um, I'd like to see the other actors, but then I'd, I'd have to go, when I'm up. But I suppose you've been forced to sit through them sometimes at film premieres. Yes. You tell the story of Norma Ray at the Cannes Film Festival, oh. which was such a wonderful story in the oh. memoir, because your mother had watched Norma Ray and said, I'm not sure that it mm -hmm. works because yeah. it seems so understated and mm -hmm. so real. Yeah. And, and tell us what happened at Cannes when it was premiered there. Boy, it's almost hard to tell that. I, it's almost hard to tell that because I, 
Um, it, it was surely a triumphant moment, and, and I know if, if, if you read the book, you will feel it coming, but I so wanted to write it as, uh, as a kind of the whole piece, as a kind of whodunit, um, or a kind of mystery of how will this unfold. You know, everybody knows I live at the end, but I want people <laughs> to wonder about it at times. Um, and maybe because all the time I was writing it, I was uncovering mysteries myself. I was uncovering things I didn't know. And so I wanted to always write in a way that you didn't quite know what was going to happen. Um, and so if I tell that story, then you won't need to read the book. And so what's the point? Um, needless to say, it, it was the first film I starred in. It was, a, it was a major moment in my life, not necessarily because of how important the film was in my career. Not really. It, it was, but that really wasn't the weight of it. The weight of it had to do with uh, that I met Marty Ritt, who became such an important voice and person in my life. Um, his support and his wisdom and who he was, um, and it was the beginning of my relationship with him. And it was serendipitously, I would get, I would find myself, I wouldn't find myself in these roles, I would fight for these roles in most cases, that were what I needed to learn as a person, that fit into where I was at that moment. And Norma was things of myself that I was grappling with, but didn't even know that I was grappling with. And when I learned her words and when I found the pieces of myself to fit into her shoes, I heard my voice. I felt her dignity and it reverberated on me. And when the, it was hard to even think that there was a film that comes out of that. I mean, it seems like that was the experience just to have that time with her and with Marty in, in Alabama and how, what a bubble of a time it was. And then when I saw the film with just my mother and I, and it is such a kind of bookend to the very beginning of, of when I first found acting at, at, at 12 in the seventh grade and my mother drove me home after sh I had done my first performance uh, with an audience. Uh, uh, and, and I did three scenes, it uh, um, was my Juliet, three scenes, the, the, the balcony scene, the death scene, and the, the potion scene. And, and then she drove me home, and it's the beginning of the book. And I wanted to know what she thought, but I was afraid to ask. And I watched her all the way home. And it, the cars would come and go, and the light would, you know, make it illuminated in the cab, in the cab of the car, in the interior, and then it would be dark. And bookend the end of the of almost this, the book is Norma Ray, and I'm I'm driving now, and my mother is sitting beside me, watching my face the way I was watching hers. She's watching my face, and something is happening between the two of us that uh, I only realized how clearly I felt it. I only realized in recalling it, in writing it. 
She wasn't sure the film worked. She wasn't sure Marty was a good director. She said, well, well he doesn't even use any music. You know? And when I was asked to go to Cannes, I didn't know what it was. It had never been seen. Bird had said to me, you don't intend, to, why was I even going? You don't think you're gonna win anything, do you? And of course I didn't, but I'd never, I'd never been. I'd never been to France. I'd, I'd, I'd never done that, and I, I, of course I was going. And um, so he hung up the phone, and slammed the phone down, and I immediately you know, got on the big, big airplane in, in, in one of those huge planes when they still had those, you know, that upstairs and downstairs event. And, uh, and then I was at Cannes, and learning about Cannes, and, 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 and I described the Carlton Hotel, and, and everything was around me. It was like just, I felt like Audrey Hepburn in, 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 in um, a Roman Holiday, you know? I was like free. I was out and seeing the world, and and they 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 prepared me that the audiences could boo, they could all like get up and leave, be prepared. These are these are very volatile audiences, and uh, it was the old opera house before the newer one had been built, and uh, and I thought the movie was so long and so boring, and I sat there and watched it, thinking, oh good God, never has a movie been so boring, and. Um, <laughs> They scrolled the titles at the end, and they were like the longest things that ever went on forever until the very end, and it said the logo of the, of the studio. And the lights came on in the balcony, and Marty and, and Bo Bridges and I were sitting in the front of the balcony. It was like Phantom of the Opera. And if I stood up, I was sure I would tumble over into the seats below and be dead before I ever knew <laughs> what, what had happened. And they turned the lights on in our faces, and everyone stood and cheered for 15 minutes. And Marty moved away and put his hand out for me. And it is, you know, there I've said it, so why read the book? Yeah. <laughs> forget, just forget I said all of that. Just pretend you don't know it. Well, people should read the book because of the way you tell stories. I read that story in that book, and you telling it again has just made me well up. God damn you. <laughs> it's just, you're such a beautiful storyteller. You really, really are. It's thank unfair you. that you're this talented. <laughs> <laughs> um, I just want to thank, on behalf of all of us, Sally Field for being utter heaven. Um, <laughs> thank you, Elizabeth. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.